This audio episode is for mature audiences only. It contains content such as animal cruelty, suicide, cannibalism, violence, gore, and sexual abuse upon adults and minors. Listener discretion is advised. You could be walking alone at night, deep in the woods, walking in a desolate underground tunnel, or exploring a dark basement. The only light source is from your small flashlight or low-quality night vision screen on your camera. Anticipation is growing inside of you. What if something jumps out into the light? What if there is a loud noise? You could be hearing the sounds of nature, water dripping, or footsteps echoing. You could hear shaky breathing, and then realize it is not your own. You blink, and remember you're actually safe sitting on your couch. You have to remind yourself that it's not real. You are just watching a movie, but not just any movie, a found footage movie. Hello, 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 everyone. You're listening to Creeping Out Katie. I'm Katie. Thank you for joining me for another creepy episode. In this podcast, I talk about different creepy things that scared me as a child. I'll also talk about the history behind them and if they're actually scary. As you can tell from our intro, this week's creepy topic is about the found footage subgenre. I recorded this episode at least five times and hated each take. I don't know. It's like how I pronounce stuff or how... There's something in the background, and then I'm like, screw it, take it from the top, whatever. Yeah, I probably recorded this episode, like, for a good two months, and then I was like, nope, don't like it, let's try something else. So hopefully six times a charm, we'll see. By definition, found footage is a film subgenre in which all or a substantial part of the work is presented as if it was discovered film recordings. The events on screen are typically seen through the camera of one or more characters involved, often accompanied by real-time or off-camera commentary. This does not strictly have to be horror. A few non-horror found footage movies include The Connection, Chronicle, Searching, and 84 Charlie Mopic. There are so many different found footage movies I could talk about. However, I think I'm just going to cover the ones that made the most impact on the genre. Now, impact does not mean good. Some found footage movies I enjoy are The Ticking of Deborah Logan, Grave Encounters, As Above, So Below, What We Do in the Shadows is a complete classic. I I love that movie with all my heart. However, I will not be talking about those movies. If you like, you can comment your favorite found footage movie in the audio's comment section or Instagram and Twitter at River6Audio. I will play different music in the background for each film I talk about. I will also give a brief content warning and summary of each film, so if you do not want to hear a certain content, or if you would like to avoid spoilers for each movie, you can just skip it to the next song. For now, relax, enjoy, and try not to get creeped out. Cannibal Holocaust, 1980 Oh boy, this one's a doozy. Um, <laughs> we'll just get this one out of the way. As you can tell by the title, this movie contains cannibalism and death. However, that's not the worst part of this film. It also contains on-screen animal deaths, sexual assault, and extreme violence and gore. During a rescue mission into the Amazon rainforest, a professor and his team stumble across lost footage shot by the missing documentary crew. Their goal was to study the region's indigenous and cannibalistic tribes. However, the film found by the rescue mission showed that the documentary crew was torturing animals and natives. The natives eventually retaliated against the crew. They were killed and the crew's flesh were eaten by the natives and the remaining body parts were used in rituals. The film was a commentary on social media at the time and western ignorance. It wanted to challenge our thinking about the state of the world. 
The European producers of the missing documentary crew believe that they were the ethical, high-minded species, and the poorly developed natives were evil and unprecedented since they were cannibals. However, the real antagonists were the documentary crew. They treated the natives morally wrong, therefore the tribe responded in kind to them. If you think about it, the film tried to have a who is the monster, who is the man message. However, all in all, it was just a disgusting exploitation film. Besides the plot, why was this film so controversial? A lot of problems came from behind the scenes. The European crew was in the middle of the Amazon rainforest during summertime, hot and gross, participating in a film that they felt very uncomfortable being a part of, with themes that they really didn't want to be associated with. Top of that, they were paid very little. Director Rigetto Diodati hired inexperienced actors who he made them sign contracts stating that they will not do any film projects to maintain the authenticity of the film. He really wanted to make it look like they just dropped off the face of the earth. There were no true safety precautions on set. In one scene, a bunch of unpaid native extras had to stand together under a burning hut with no medical tent around. Another big problem about the film was the animal cruelty. Several creatures were killed solely for the purpose of shock value in the film production. The actors were against the idea of killing actual animals, but the director insisted it would make the film more believable. The most graphic animal deaths include a turtle, a muskrat, a tarantula, a small pig, and a monkey. To make matters worse, the monkey's death scene had to be filmed twice, meaning that they actually had to require two monkeys to die. After its release, the movie was banned at least 40 countries and the filmmakers were charged with murder. Wow! Who would have thunk it? This is one of the first movies to use a found footage style, so people believe that the actors were actually dead on camera. Thankfully, the very much still alive actors were summoned to disprove the allegations in court. Diodato revealed in court how he accomplished some of the shocking gore of the human sacrifices with special effects. To give this dumpster fire of a movie some credit, the special effects were really good. It is extremely hard to differentiate what is real and what is not real in the film. The court dropped the murder charges, but still held the animal cruelty and insanity charges. With a budget of 100,000, Diodato has claimed that the film has grossed as much as 200 million worldwide in the wake of its various re-releases. Um, hate to say this, but you can find the film on YouTube. Uncensored. The whole thing. For free. Hooray. Ghost Watch, 1992. Besides a few jump scares, I do not believe this film needs a content warning. However, Ghost Watch unintentionally led to several cases of PTSD, premature births, and a real-life suicide, which I'll talk about briefly. This, by definition, is not found footage, but it definitely helped shape the genre. Ghost Watch was a fictional ghost hunting broadcast on Halloween purposely meant to look like a live paranormal investigation of a United Kingdom family home. While the hosts of the show had an investigation and interviews, the family's paranormal encounters increased to a horrifying climax of furniture moving and spirits attacking the show's cast. So in this 90-minute Halloween special, viewers were asked to call in their own ghost stories, which became an important plot point later on. While the reporters stayed at the house with the family, a paranormal expert attempted to explain the events they were viewing live. Through revealing footage and interviews with neighbors, the viewers and reporters discover the existence of a ghost nicknamed Pipes. 
Later, viewers learned that Pipes is the spirit of a psychologically disturbed man named Raymond Tansel, who previously lived in the house. However, one of the family children was caught by the camera crew banging on the pipes in order to make the viewers and the host believe that their house was haunted. The main reporter wanted to dismiss the entire thing as a hoax. However, the calls continued to the studio, where viewers said that they've seen a figure in the house that resembled Pipes. Further calls revealed that the poltergeist activity was now occurring in other people's homes. Pipes' real spirit manifests itself, which becomes more bold and terrifying until at the very end, the paranormal expert realizes that the program itself has been acting as a sort of national seance through which Pipes was gaining power. If you go looking for ghosts, you're gonna get ghosts. The film ends with the spirit dragging the host out of sight behind the door and then escaping to reach poltergeist havoc throughout the country. He takes control of the BBC studio and attacks a paranormal expert. This film reminds me of one of my favorite episodes from Tales from the Crypt, Season 2, Episode Television Terror. That episode came out two years before Ghostwatch, so I wonder if it had any influence on the film. To make this pre-recorded broadcast seem real, the network had a fake number line for viewers to call if they saw anything paranormal or, like they said, want to talk about their own paranormal experiences. The callers who were able to get through received a message telling them that the show was fictional. However, the phone number was besieged by at least a million callers during the broadcast. Many people only got a dial tone, because, you know, the 90s. Since found footage was not a common style of storytelling at the time, many viewers, especially children, were traumatized by the ghost encounters. This film was instantly banned after numerous complaints from viewers. There were reports of three pregnant women giving premature births. A few years after the broadcast, scientists viewed those brain scans of two boys who watched it live. They showed signs of PTSD, experiencing sleep difficulties, fear of the dark, panic attacks, and horrific nightmares. Unfortunately, another viewer named Martin Dunham was severely traumatized. While watching the program, his family stated that he looked like he was in a trance. For the next few days, he spoke non-stop for the so-called proof of ghosts. Martin committed suicide after the broadcast. On his body, he left a note stating, quote, if there are ghosts, I am now one, and I will always be with you as one. He was 18 years old. Blair Witch, 1999 Okay, now we can talk about Blair Witch Project. For content warnings, this doesn't have any violence in it, but it was rated R for depictions of terror. Found video footage tells us the tale of three missing film students, Heather, Josh, and Mike, as they travel to a small town to collect documentary footage about the Blair Witch. In the beginning, the students interview townspeople and gather clues to support the tale's authenticity, but the project takes a frightening turn when the students lose their way in the woods. They soon hear horrific sounds, find makeshift tokens, and get chased by an unseen assailant. Eventually, Josh is lost deeper in the woods. The footage ends with Heather and Mike in an abandoned house's basement. Mike was standing in some sort of trance in the corner of the room. Heather screams as she is attacked by something and drops the camera, ending the footage. Now don't hate me, but I found the Blair Witch Project very boring when I first watched it. I was at a sleepover, it was late, I kept falling in and out of sleep, all they did was walk around the woods. I like the movie now, but that's because I find the behind-the-scenes information more entertaining than the actual film. And I don't like it too, but I prefer the sequel, Book of Shadows, more than the original. I know it wasn't the best, but I was actually entertained. I found the movie's portray of hysteria interesting. Was it an accurate representation of mass hysteria? I don't think so, but I had fun watching it. 
Okay, I'm done. Let's talk about the Blair Witch Project. As the legend goes, in 1785, the village of Blair, Maryland, a group of children accused Ellie Kedward of taking them to her home and drawing blood from them. The enraged townspeople quickly found her guilty, and she was banished outside of the village into the harsh winter to die of exposure. By the next year, all of her accusers and some of the village's children vanish, leading to the village becoming abandoned. A new township settled on the site decades later, but over the years, strange occurrences happened. Children were disappearing again, and there was a ritualistic murder of a search party in 1886. In 1940, a hermit named Rustin Parr turned himself into authorities and confessed to the murder of several children in his basement, claiming that a cloak ghost woman made him do it. Kyle Bordy, one of the survivors, said Parr made the boys stand in the corner facing the wall while he committed the killings. Parr was hanged for his crimes and the legend of the Blair Witch faded. The three main actors, Heather Dunham, Joshua Leonard, and Michael C. Williams, were told by the directors that the Blair Witch was a real urban legend of the area. It was not. In fact, unknown to them, in the scenes where the three leads were interviewing locals about the legend, they were actually interviewed hired actors. This was a tactic to make the legend seem more believable to the main three. Throughout the filming process, the scripts were more of an outline of what they wanted the main three to say and do. The directors wanted the dialogue improvised by the actors in order to make the performances more real. The main three were really on their own for most of the production. Yes, the production team programmed weight points in their GPS units for the actors to locate milk cartons with food containers and such, but really they were on their own. In these containers, they had food, water, and notes about where they want the story to go for each character. They could not show the other two actors what their paper said. From that point, they were free to improvise dialogue that followed the general instructions given to them. The movie's success was mainly due to the internet. Blair Witch came out when the internet became more accessible to everyday people. The co-director built the website that helped spread the myth of the Blair Witch to anyone who wanted information. It had legit-looking missing posters of the main three, Heather's journal entries, and more. The website remained online for 20 years. Like Cannibal Holocaust, a lot of people really thought the three actors were dead. The studio went great lengths to make sure that the cast was away from press for a time. Heather's mom even received sympathy cards until it was revealed that the actors were alive and well. One not-so-fun behind-the-scenes fact was that each of the main three were forced to sign a release form agreeing to let the producers, quote, mess with their head. Day after day, directors intentionally gave the three leads less and less food. It was meant to heighten the tension between the actors. The mysterious, crackling sounds in the woods were made by the production team stomping on the ground, breaking sticks in two, and throwing them around the camp. In fact, the crew also attacked their tent one night without warning the actors. Around 45 minutes into the film, when Heather screams, quote, what the fuck is that? She was reacting to director Ricardo Moreno, who was running alongside them, wearing white stockings and white pantyhose pulled over his head. It sucks that we did not get to see the footage on camera, but the actors' genuine reactions made the audience think that they were being chased by the Blair Witch or another evil entity. Actor Michael stated that the most frightening scene in the movie was when he heard children at night. In this scene, the actors heard the sounds of children playing in the middle of the night. The sounds were actually recordings of children playing outside of the director's mother's house. They were played on tape from boomboxes surrounding the campsite. In an interview with Vangoria magazine, Heather claimed that she was so horrified by the final scene, she was crying and breathing heavily long after it was shot. The budget was $300,000 and made a profit of $248.6 million in the box office. Paranormal Activity 2007 Content warning for this movie, it's mostly just jump scares. 
So this series is the first time I've ever seen a movie from the found footage genre. I watched the first three movies and I remember I was bored, then scared, bored, then scared. Paranormal Activity became a series of about six movies. However, I don't see the point of talking about all of them since they did not make as much of an impact to the genre as the first one did. In 2006, couple Katie and Micah are supposedly being tormented by a demon that has been haunting Katie since childhood. Micah uses cameras to record any ghostly activity and goes against advice of not working with a demonologist. Throughout the movie, the cameras capture many strange occurrences in the bedroom during the night. They start off with only noises, flickering lights, shadows, and bedroom doors moving. Soon, they escalate into more violent encounters, such as doors slamming, loud thuds, and demonic grunts and scratches. Katie, on one night, appears to be in a trance. She gets up, stands beside the bed, staring at Micah for about two hours, and goes outside. The next day, Katie claims that she does not remember anything about that night. Micah brings home an Ouija board, which is a huge no-no in horror films. Then again, Ouija boards or spirit boards are totally fake, and I would love to talk about the rise and fall of spiritualism in the future. Anyway, when the couple leaves the house, the cameras record an unseen force moving the board's pointer to form an unknown message on the surface, and then simultaneously catches on fire. One night, Katie is pulled out of bed by an unseen force. Micah discovers bite marks on her back the morning after. On the very last night, Katie gets out of bed again and stares at Micah for about two hours before going downstairs. Katie screams for Micah, and he quickly rushes to help her. The viewers cannot see what happened downstairs, but can hear Micah screaming in pain. After a moment of silence, Micah's body is violently hurled to the camera in which it knocks over the tripod, revealing a demonic Katie standing in the doorway with blood stains on her shirt. She crawls to Micah's body, then looks up at the camera with a grin. She lunges towards the camera, just as the screen cuts black and another growl is heard. The film ends stating that Micah's body was discovered by the police on October 11, 2006, Katie nowhere to be seen. I remember the commercials for this movie primarily showed test audience reaction. They were screaming and hiding and it was so scary. The movie was shot in 2006, released and circled around film festivals in 2007, and did not make an official worldwide release until 2009. I think the three-year difference was beneficial to the movie's authenticity. It really made it seem like this was someone's home video that was found years after a tragedy. It added another layer of uneasiness knowing that Katie has been missing for so long after this event. This film series also popularized found footage movies again. There are three original endings to Paranormal Activity. The original entails cops coming into the house the day after and shooting and killing Katie. However, test audiences did not like it. The alternate ending features Katie gruesomely slicing her throat, which was later changed to a theatrical ending. According to Entertainment Weekly, there was also an ending that never filmed. Quote, A possessed Katie corners Micah and pledges in him with a camera, while viewers watch from the camera's perspective, or POV. I think the never filmed ending would have been really cool, but I know my middle school heart would not have liked it at all. Like, I could picture the lens becoming red and blurry from all the blood in the brain bits. Ugh, mm, no, that's nasty. That's too nasty. Jason Blum was the producer of Paranormal Activity. Yes, the producer who brought us Get Out... The Invisible Man remake, Happy Death Day, The Black Phone, and many good and not-so-good Blumhouse production movies. Producer Jason Blum worked at Miramax in the 90s as a movie distributor and passed on the opportunity to acquire the Blair Witch Project. This was a decision he quickly regretted when the movie became one of the most profitable low-budget movies of all time. I guess he learned from his mistake and made paranormal activity. He was able to fund Blumhouse Productions with the profits. According to timestamps on the video footage, many of the demonic activities occurred between 2 and 3.30 a.m. This is a time known as dead time among paranormal researchers. 
it is when demons, spirits, and entities are supposedly at their most active. Production was 15,000 and post-production was 215,000. After being released, the movie made a profit of 193.4 million. Megan is Missing, 2011. This movie contains graphic SA towards minors. The main characters, Megan and Amy, are 14-year-old best friends that vanished in January 2007. Investigators assembled webcam videos, home movies, and news reports chronicling their disappearances. This is not an influential or iconic film like the previous movies. However, it did terrify me, especially the ending of the movie. This movie brought awareness to the importance of online safety for children. What is truly terrifying about this movie was that it showed that there are predators everywhere. It is so hard to supervise children on the internet, especially when they have no idea who they're actually talking to. Host, 2020. This film contains jump scares, depictions of suicide, and realistic gore. During the United Kingdom COVID-19 pandemic lockdown, a group of six friends have decided to hold a Zoom call to stay in touch. One of the friends hired a medium to lead them in the seance. During the seance, one of the members claimed to feel an intense tension around her neck. She said that someone named Jack is with her, a friend who committed suicide in her school by hanging himself. The medium's internet is cut off, disconnecting her from the chat. The friend informs the group that she made up Jack because she was bored of the silence. The remaining friends of the group began to experience a strange, terrifying phenomena, such as chairs being pulled by unseen forces and seeing hanging corpses in several rooms. One of the friends managed to get back in touch with the medium and informs her of everything that's happening. The medium believes that the prank may have allowed a spirit or a demon access to our world, entering the circle during the seance and beginning to give them instructions on how to close the seance. The spirit interrupts this, ending the call, making the group believe that the ordeal is over. As the group members begin to leave the Zoom call, they are all attacked by supernatural forces and are killed. During lockdown, filmmakers had to get really creative. On a recorded Zoom call with some friends, filmmaker Rob Savage wanted to play a prank on them and said that he was hearing weird noises from his attic. He took the camera to investigate the sound, but added a clip of an infected boy in the attic from the found footage movie Wreck. Savage then fell from the attic to make it look like he was attacked. This obviously scared his friends since they thought it was real at first. The video of the friends' reactions went viral and inspired Savage, co-writer Jed Shepard, and producer Douglas Cox to make it into a full-length film. Since the friends in the original Zoom group were actors, they agreed to play the characters. Due to lockdown, they could not be together, so the cast had to do their own sound, lighting, makeup, stunts, effects, recordings, all that fun jazz. To make the actors' reactions more genuine, the filmmakers recorded the characters' deaths ahead of time and then played the footage while recording to get their genuine reactions. Honestly, if I saw a footage of my friend being fake murdered in a brutal way, I would freak out too! This movie is not as influential as the previous movies, but it really does show how, with a bit of talent, anyone can make a found footage movie. Budget was about £35,000 and made about 443800 in the box office. Love them or hate them, there's a reason that found footage is associated with the horror genre. Audience members have a sense that they're part of the story, seen through the eyes of the characters. Watching something that seems firsthand, a raw image of horror happening right in front of you, is powerful and terrifying. Creeping Out Katie was brought to you by River Sticks Audio and created by me, Katie Clark. For written transcripts, research credit, updates, and more, visit our website at riverstixaudio.com. 
www.wixsite.com. If you enjoyed this podcast or any of our other podcasts, follow our Instagram and Twitter under Riversticks Audio. Music from this episode includes Misconceptions by Mew, Dangerous Toys by Self Cole, Tech by Bobby Richards, Maestro Tagle by Jess Gallagher, Fault Lines by Asher Folero, and Surrender by Asher Folero. Logo art by Malin Costello from MC Design. <laughs>